He was born on, Jan- on November the 7th, 1918. And he died last week. Some of you will have noticed. Some of you it might have passed you by. But he said this. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I've just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? And uh, there was one point in, uh, during last week, just kind of a bit of a statement on the way life has changed during the life of Billy Graham, that was being tweeted every 15 seconds across the world. That is an incredible impact, isn't it? In all fairness, he didn't actually say that first. <laughs> it was a guy called D.L. Moody who first said that, and uh, in unashamed plagiarism, Billy Graham said, the same for me, and for those of us who believe with unashamed plagiarism, we would be able to say exactly the same thing. He had an absolute, unshakable passion for the world to hear about Jesus Christ. I think just for a moment it is a great thing To recognize him, yes, as a man of his time, but at the same time to honor him as somebody who was used in an incredible way, astounding way. And may we be granted the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of giants. But I think, in fact, I am convinced that Billy Graham would have said, that's all I've done as well. I've stood on the shoulders of giants who've gone before me. Giants of the Christian faith down through the centuries. Ultimately, giants like the Apostle Paul, who only stood on the shoulders of Jesus. That's where we are today. We stand on those shoulders. It's almost as though that giant of Jesus, who stands above every other being in the whole of human history, bears on his shoulders every tiny little individual who speaks in the name of Jesus. That's where we are today. But I just want to pause for a minute and think, how does that idea impact on us? How does it shape us? And how does that idea of this man who's who's parted the address of this world for a greater address in the past week, how does that life connect with this little passage of the Bible? Because it just almost seems maybe a strange thing for us to turn to. So I want to look firstly at the first three verses of Acts chapter 16. It says this, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jesus, and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. That few sentences is amazing. 
when you put it in the kind of journey of the previous chapters. What is Acts all about? It's about taking us on a journey and explaining to us, in one sense, as we looked at it just before Christmas, why we're here today, (laughs) without a doubt. But it also, it's about taking us on a journey of understanding how Jesus was working in His absence, having already been present with us. It's how the church builds and develops, how this fledgling kindergarten church finds its feet and declares the message of Jesus. And that is absolutely at the heart of this man, Paul. We read that he came to Derby and then to Lystra. That's just kind of a, a little throwaway. Two places where we see him, we kind of we find him, we capture him on this journey. But the reality is that the whole of his life has been turned upside down and he has become a journeying missionary for a message that he once persecuted. The, the turnaround is remarkable. In fact, Luke is determined for us to understand that turnaround. Paul is on journeys, Saul as he was called at the time. He was journeying from place to place to crush the message of Jesus. To crush believers in Jesus. He was absolutely dedicated to seeing this message eradicated. Not because, although we could say yes, maybe because he was filled with hate. But he had a misplaced, righteous indignation. He was horrified. He thought this was absolutely, spiritually, morally, ethically outrageous. This Jesus... This person who claims to be no less than God present with us. That is an outrage to Paul. He is, he is so, so shocked that this should emerge in his lifetime that he commits himself to eradicating it. And the turning point is when he is confronted by that Jesus. And that's the turning point. The one who believed that God could not be present realizes that God was present in Jesus. And his whole life that was once a traveling commitment to eradication is now a traveling commitment to propagation. The turnaround is massive. And he's also, during that journey, if you imagine, this is literally... A couple of decades, maybe, his life is the, this life of Paul in the, in the message of Jesus in the early church. They're in the process of working out what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. The, the, the Christian message is absolutely rooted in a heritage of Jewish faith. All of the early believers come from Jerusalem. And then they start to spread out and the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus, starts to find a kind of a growing hearing within the synagogues of people who are dispersed from the Jewish nation. All around the Roman Empire there are synagogues. And the disciples go to these various synagogues, as we saw a few weeks ago, having been kicked out of Jerusalem because of persecution. 
and they, they speak to people about all of their history, rooted in the message of the Old Testament, the, Old, the Hebrew Bible, and saying, this is the fulfillment. It is all about Jesus. And, and it's happened. He is the one. And so they're working out then, if our heritage is all about this, then what does it mean to now become a follower of Jesus? Some of you might have experienced what it is like to be destabilized by moving from one culture to the next, to another, finding yourself immersed in a new culture. It was a bit like that for us 23 years ago when we came over here from Liverpool. When we arrived in Yorkshire and, and it was all totally different. And kind of now I love rugby league. It's kind of this journey is finding its, its fulfillment, it seems, in, in finding a home in Yorkshire. But imagine if that sense of identity is written deep, deep inside of you. Your commitments, your ethical framework, the things that you hold on to absolutely, critically, believing it deeply because it has happened for hundreds and hundreds of years and you are part of it. That's what was going on. And this little few verses is astounding because of that. It's just a little kind of throwaway thing. Paul wanted to take this young man called Timothy along on the journey of proclaiming the message of the gospel and so he had him circumcised. That is like, light the blue touch paper and throw the bomb into the middle of the room. It is an astounding statement. Why? Because the previous chapter is all about the fact that you don't need to be circumcised. What's happened previously is people have come to faith in all sorts of parts of, of Asia. And believers, Jewish believers, have gone to those places and they have said, it is essential, absolutely essential, that you are circumcised as a man to be a follower of Jesus. Acts chapter 15 verse 1 says this, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's how big a deal it was. You cannot be saved unless you do this thing. It's really, really easy for those of us who, who are used to sitting in the New Testament in 21st century to kind of look at the, the idea of being circumcised as why, why would you even do that? But if we placed ourselves in first century Judea, our whole history would have been shaped by this. And this becomes a massive issue. Really big. And so there is one, the first church council. Since this church council in Jerusalem, there have been historically lots of church councils working out what do we really believe. 
they went down, they said, you've got to be circumcised. The outcome of that counsel is this. Chapter 15, verse 28 and 29. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's the, end. That's the kind of summary of a letter that gets sent around all of the churches. Exactly the same issue is facing us today. Not the issue of circumcision, but the issue of we are saved by the things that we do. The idea that we've got to do certain things to be saved. That's what's at stake. You might be listening to this message of the Christian faith. You might have been coming along for some time. And I want to make it really clear that it is easy for us to understand the idea of the Christian faith as a whole set of things that we've got to do. Uh, And it's really easy when your heritage, your tradition, says that you've got to do these things. But this fledgling church is working it out, and it's saying, hang on a sec, we're not going to burden you with things to do. We're going to burden you with the great issues. And you say, well, hang on a sec, what does it say? Food sacrificed to idols from blood, meat uh, meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. How does that work out today? The big message is quite simply this. Make sure you understand what you are worshipping. It's all about worship of God or idolatry. Now, if we followed through that idea of worship of God, in absolutely letter for letter, we'd decide, wouldn't we, that we couldn't have black pudding. Really, because it's blood. But the issue that they're facing is how do we become a distinct people. How do we become an identifiable people? And quite simply, it says this, the things that you have got to do are to worship, work out that your worship is towards God and you are not shaped by idolatry. That's the strangled animals and the meat sacrificed to idols and the blood and all that stuff. That's about worship of God and not worship of other things or other gods. And then secondly, make sure that you understand that your Christian faith has an implication on your moral orientation. That we are called to live differently in our ethics and our morality as well. There is a difference. That's what you're called to do. And then they come to Timothy. His mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. And having argued through this whole issue at a council, Timothy gets circumcised. He's a young man. He's not a baby. And if I was Timothy at this point in the discussion, I think I'd have been saying to Paul, "Can, can we just pause for a minute and just go back to the conversation in chapter 15? Because quite honestly, I don't want to be circumcised. So why, oh why, oh why, does Paul decide that Timothy should be circumcised? That is a critical question, isn't it? 
And it's quite simply this. That Paul has understood that there is the potential for some people to find Timothy's status as uncircumcised to be a barrier to conversation. It's not a religious responsibility that's at stake. It's having a barrier to conversation. If we go into synagogues and we go into sit down in homes, in Jewish homes, quite frankly, Timothy, you can't be part of those discussions. That's how critical the gospel was to Paul. That's how important it was to him. He says to Timothy, I want you to go through this ordeal as a grown man because I don't want a barrier for you to be able to speak for the sake of the message of the Bible. Don't allow that. Do you know what? That is dramatic. This little section is dramatic for us. I think so often don't we think about the idea of sharing the message of the Bible as being this peripheral thing (laughs) that goes on. And yet what Paul is tying in to the letter that they take to the believers is quite simply this. Number one, make sure that your worship is right and you're not idolatrous. Number two, make sure that you are ethically committed to the life that you are called to live in purity and righteousness. And then thirdly, take every issue that you see that could be a barrier to you being able to reshape the message for your hearers and take it away. It was eight and a half years ago. It seemed a big thing to come into here to be a church in this place. It seemed a big thing. For those of you who might not have been here, for those of you who are maybe just hearing this message of the Bible and say, why a church here? Taking us right back to there, it's quite simply this. We wanted to take away every possible barrier That's not saying that this is the way that church should be. It is a way that church can be. It's a way that some barriers can be broken down. It's it's a way which is perhaps environmentally, locationally less threatening. It's a place where discussion and dialogue can take place in, in ways which are surprising and exciting. Because barriers have been taken down. Because as we have said from day one, It is a surprising place to find a church. (laughs) And that's why, you know, that's part of what we wanted to do through this series, is to remind ourselves that the priority that we have, the desire that we have, is to take away the barriers so that the message of the gospel can be shared to the community that we now live in. Now, for Paul, that meant Timothy had to be circumcised so that he could enter into conversation in synagogues and in Jewish homes. That's what he had to do. For us, maybe it was the discomfort of ending up in a surprising place for church. 
or whatever else it might be, or ending up in awkward conversations, or maybe having to rethink what it means to be church on a week-to-week basis because it doesn't look like what I'm used to. But all of those things, all of those issues and facets of what it is, is because we were seeking and we continue to seek and we are committed to seeking to taking down the barriers so that we can speak about this Jesus. Tele-evangelists have in lots of ways got a very justifiable bad press. They have. There are lots of things which are really, really not good about that. But you know, Billy Graham was the first tele-evangelist for all the right reasons. Using a medium which was completely new in the 1950s when relatively few people had televisions. But he saw the opportunity to share the gospel in ways which could reach way more people than had ever been reached before. And in our own little tiny, minuscule way, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And we seek in every little detail to find ways to share by taking away barriers. Now, do you see what happens when you do that? Paul ends up looking inconsistent on some things because he's consistent on bigger things. That is really important. There are times when we might look inconsistent. If you take this letter from Jerusalem that you shouldn't eat food sacrificed to idols and then you carry on with that idea right the way through Corinthians and into Romans and you try to work out what is the Bible actually teaching, it is massively difficult to say it is absolutely this. There is seeming inconsistency in statements. You can do this, you can't do this. In Corinthians, it talks about the possibility of you being in, in a temple eating, in, eating meat. What are you doing as a believer in a temple eating meat? Paul says that's possible. You might look inconsistent. And that's okay when you are consistent with the bigger issues. And that's what we want to be. We desperately want to be consistent with the bigger issues. We don't want, we don't decide we're going to be inconsistent in this, that, and the other. But it ends up happening. It ends up happening. Because what we are dealing with is the individuality of sharing the gospel in our own particular location at this moment in time. I am so delighted, so thrilled that you have been able to come this afternoon if you're just listening in to this idea of the Christian faith. And I want to say that if you are trying to work it out, you know, I'm trying to get my hands around what is actually being said. It's quite simply this. 
Jesus is at the center. That's what's at the heart of it. There's times when we won't speak that clearly. There's times when we'll mess up speaking that clearly. There's times when we'll cloud it because we'll get involved in all sorts of other stuff. Please forgive us for those times. Because right at the heart of what we want to share is what Paul was wanting to share. He's effectively saying, do you know what? I don't care about circumcision anymore. I'll, I'll do it and I'll not do it when it is necessary or not necessary because more than anything, I want you to know Jesus. So the first thing we see is that we take away every barrier. Second thing we see is that the gospel is about growing. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. That's that letter that we saw in 1 Corinthians 15. We delivered the uh, reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. As a result of that, what happened? So, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. That's what happened. When they got together and they said, okay, we're going to work out what does it actually mean to be faithful today? What what does it look like? We've got this letter from Jerusalem. They're saying that we don't have to worry about those things that we've been told about being circumcised. They got around it and they got committed to it and they built themselves around the idea and they realized Jesus is at the center. How do we work that out in our own town? How do we work that out as a group of people? What does it look like? When that happened, they grew. They grew in their faith and they grew in number. When they made Jesus the center, they grew. The reality of many of our church experiences is that we don't grow because Jesus is not the center. We get worried about all sorts of other things, periphery things, things that can live for a while and then die, things that are insignificant compared to the centrality of Jesus being proclaimed. But when they got it together, they grew. They grew. My desperate plea to us as a church is that we do not lose sight of that. That we keep Jesus at the center. Because I'll guarantee when we lose Jesus at the center, we'll stop growing in our faith and we'll stop growing as a church. That's what will happen. Now the problem is, we can get wrapped up in all sorts of things that make it look as though we've got Jesus at the center. (laughs) But we haven't. What we've got at the center are the things that we've held on to in the past. And, And I find it absolutely amazing how quickly traditions can be established. We're going through change. Things will change. Things that have happened in the past will not happen in the future or they'll be reshaped. I don't know what that is. I don't know how that's going to look. 
But my plea is that through this journey, we keep Jesus at the center and our faith will grow and we will grow as a body of believers. That's the key. Lose sight of that and we are in a heap of trouble. We are under real, real pressure because we've lost our first love. So what do we see? They get around it and they were strengthened in their faith. Authentic faith, for them as a group of Christians, was a lived-out experience. It wasn't a head knowledge. It was what I do on a day-to-day basis. What do I do on Monday morning when I get up to go to the marketplace? When I get up to go to work, when I get up to do whatever you or I are going to do tomorrow, their faith was a lived experience. It changed the way they lived. And the way they lived became at the same time problematic and appealing. For some, it became so appealing that they joined as well. And they said, I want to live that. It it makes sense and it gives hope in a world which has no hope. And for others, the message of Jesus was something which became really infuriating. But what the believers did was that they were strengthened in their faith. I think when it uses that phrase, strengthened in their faith, It means that they embraced it in a way which gave them a zeal to live according to the faith that they said that they had. That's what strengthened faith is. When they are changed to live more according to what they say they believe. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? What do you believe? What do you really believe? I think what we really deep down believe is what we actually go and do. (laughs) That's what James is on about. He says, you know, your faith without lived out work and and living it out effectively, it's meaningless. It's just empty words. Faith without works is dead, he says. But real faith, real lived out faith means that we get changed. We live differently. And we begin to realize that Christian discipleship is missional. I know that there are some folks here today because they have shared friendship with people who are believers and just the way that they have lived has spoken to them in a way that they say, that is appealing. That means something. That is the purpose of the church. To declare this Jesus on a day-to-day basis, on an hour-to-hour basis, because we're committed to it in all of the normality of life. Yeah, I, I, I guess my conviction is, it's a minor thing, really. I guess my conviction is that the kind of the campaigns that Billy Graham had in all of those 
those years, they were great. They were fantastic. But that's not where we are today. It's not where the world is today. We need to, we need to be speaking to the world today. Billy Graham was speaking to a Western, particularly American and UK, English-speaking population who knew about the gospel. And what he said was, you've got to believe it, accept it, and live it. What you already know. He was calling them to do what they already knew in principle. We're in a different world. Talk about Jesus and... and One, most of us in our culture today only know him as a historical name. We don't know the claims. We don't understand even the difference between Christmas and Easter. I actually think that is a tremendous opportunity because the message of the Bible can come with a freshness. But we've got to have the same passion as Billy Graham. We've got to have the same concern as Paul that we really desperately want to live it so that you would know it. So the gospel is all about growing. And then thirdly, we see this moment is an incredible turning point in world history. And I think Timothy in this, this strange kind of turning point of a Jewish mother and a Greek father almost prepares us for verse 6 to 8. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. You know, just as an aside, that is a great little verse for our experience over the past two years. We don't know where we've been. We've been at sixes and sevens, we've been heading in one direction and trying another direction, but deep down, what have we known is that God is opening the doors, the Spirit of Jesus is closing the doors, restricting us and opening up doors for us so that we can live Paul didn't have no strategy. He was trying to do things with a planned and organized idea. But he was also totally understanding that the strategy that he had had a tiny S in front of it, and the strategy of Jesus had a capital S, and that would be revealed to him when it was necessary for him to know it. And the same goes for us. The idea that we've only just in the past month or so, actually signed a contract for 10 years, is the Spirit of Jesus working in areas and structures that we have no control over, but the Spirit of Jesus does. That's our kind of connection with this. But what happens? Timothy sits in this kind of Jew-Greek kind of halfway house, but the outcome of this uncertainty and doors being blocked and doors being opened results in verse 9 with this. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Macedonia. If you look at the map from where he was in Troas, Asia, he heads west into Europe, or towards Europe. And we are the result of this vision. The message of the Bible being spread throughout Europe, or this portrayal in the book of Acts, that the, do you realize the reason that you were stopped from going there, stopped from going there, halted from going there, is because you're to go that way. Actually, for you guys, it's that way. West, to Europe. That's where the message of the gospel is to go next. That's what I've decided. That's where it's happening next for you. And Paul, from here on for the rest of Acts, ends up in totally Gentile country. It's amazing. We're here today, at least because Paul started the journey into Macedonia. But absolutely because Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus has purposed for the Word to be proclaimed in all of the places that it's ended up. That might seem strange to you if you're hearing this message of the Bible for the first time, but it is part of our conviction and our understanding of how this works is that it is not down to us, but it is down to Jesus opening up opportunities, sharing this great message of hope in Him for the world. That's why we're here. And my prayer is that we will never forget it. That we will look to take away every unnecessary barrier. That we will live out an appealing Christian message in the lives that we live and we will believe that it is Jesus who is opening the doors for us. We've got one more. And we've got kind of a backwards journey. Next week, we're going to look at the idea that Jesus is supreme over all.